Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Ursula K. Le Guin is the very definition of a legend. So many of us found our way to speculative fiction through her works, while others only realised later the tropes we so loved, and some of which are considered cliché now, were fresh and new when Le Guin brought them to life. When we think of speculative fiction's history as a boys' club, there are always a few exceptions, Le Guin being one. And she paved the way for many female speculative fiction writers to be respected while tackling serious issues such as equality and violence against women. Worlds of Exile and Illusion contains three of Le Guin's earliest novels, Rukanon's World, Planet of Exile and City of Illusions, and make up the first part of her Hainish cycle. While these works are not her most well-known, nor objectively her best, it is important that we reflect on an author's early work and their journey to becoming one of the greatest of all. This new edition from Tor Essentials features an introduction by Amal El Motar, who is kindly joining us tonight to discuss Le Guin, from her early work to her lasting legacy. So, um, hello, Amal. Working. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Um, could you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, I am an author and a critic. Uh, I wrote half of a novel called This Is How You Lose the Time War with Max Gladstone. Um, I've written a lot of short fiction um, and poetry, and I also uh, write the otherworldly review column for the New York Times book review. So I review their I do their science fiction fantasy column. Um, and I teach creative writing at the University of Ottawa, and I introduced this book. So Le Guin's career was long and full, which makes a, a single episode on her works quite difficult to craft. So we felt a good way to do so would be to take a closer look at several of the themes uh, she explored throughout her career, such as anthropology, the buildings from our narratives, uh, equality, and a bit of Taoism she was interested in uh, throughout her life. Um, so I, just kicking off with something that I found quite interesting um, when we were coming up with questions for this episode, I wasn't actually aware that Le Guin's parents were both anthropologists and that anthropology was you know, such a formative study for her from a very early age. It's funny, though, because when you actually think about her books and you think about her protagonists and how she goes about um, you know, crafting a story the whole idea of inquisitiveness and a willingness to learn about cultures that are not our own seems to be a, a very important part in many of her novels. Um, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, how you see uh, anthropology or, the, you know, an anthropological background uh, forming an important part of, of Le Guin's work. Sure. Um, I think that it's particularly interesting in the context of um, these Hainish books, because uh, they are they are so much about um, observing, they, they are really about observing different kinds of humanity in different, um, I mean, partly in different places, different planets, uh, but the but also in very different material conditions. And so I think you can see in some of these, it's a lot more explicit than in others, but the main thing that I see in terms of that sort of inheritance uh, is a willingness to look at your own defaults and your own assumptions as um, as a person learning about other people's. Um, and to basically, whenever you're trying to create a taxonomy of a different of different groups, uh, to be aware of the degree to which you're also putting codifying elements of yourself essentially so there is i think in in all of these so that it approaches um i think that all of these are a little bit different in terms of how they um 
proceed with those questions of, of curiosity and interest and stuff. You have in the first, in Rokanan's world, you have an actual anthropologist figure. In uh, Planet of Exile, you have um, two different societies that are trying to, that, that have been coexisting and are reaching a kind of inflection point for uh, various reasons because they're about to be invaded. Um, and in that case, there's like a, this, the, the human group has been um, there for a long time. And there are questions about at what point do you become a different people than you, in, than, than, you know, your inheritance dictated and stuff like that. Um, and in the, uh, in city of illusions, there's questions of memory what does memory give you as an inheritance and what do you lose when your memory is taken away from you and stuff like that? And I think in all of these cases, some of the kind of core anthropological concerns about like looking at different societies and different groups and um, seeing different sort of possibilities for the self that is looking at those groups, I think is part of it. I think it's part of that curiosity. And I think also granting a, a very inherent respect and acknowledgement of dignity in different ways of doing things, different ways of organizing society um, is, is a big part of this. And it's funny because I'm used to the word anthropology and anthropologist being a very sort of freighted one, um, full of sort of asymmetries of power and um, assumptions of a kind of, you know, white supremacist default going and looking at other um, other groups of people in a sort of um, patronizing, condescending, almost zoological way, essentially, thinking of like a, a 19th century tradition of, you know, quote unquote, discovering other peoples and stuff. And um, but that that isn't really the tradition that I see Le Guin working in. I, I see her kind of in these books instead, always whenever there's an observation made about a different group, immediately putting that observation in conversation with things about oneself or like the the, the, the observing self that may not have been recognized up until that point. I'm really glad you mentioned the. The definition we have of anthropology, though, because that I think that it, there's something very true about that. It it smacks of like you know Orientalism and yeah. the, the thing that created that movement and you know how it, oh ex the word exotic and how this is bandied mm -hmm. around. But I think you're right in saying that her anthropology is not this kind of rather tainted idea that has come from through from the 19th century. Yeah, I think that there's a kind of and so I, I don't feel um, sufficiently knowledgeable about like the the sort of roots of anthropology as a discipline, I'm aware of it having sort of reckoned with itself a great deal, the way most disciplines that have their roots in 19th yeah. century imperialism tend to. Um, but, you know, that includes English literature. That includes, like, plenty of things that are not just anthropology. Um, so I, I feel like there's been a great deal that has been debunked or kind of recontextualized in terms of anthropological practices and assumptions and stuff like that. But yeah, for me, the main thing is that Le Guin's anthropology doesn't wear a pith helmet, you know, like it, it really feels like what it reminds me of actually is um, um, Naomi Mitchison and uh, like Naomi Mitchison had, who, who incidentally Le Guin read um, and loved. Wait, are either of you familiar with her? I'm, I'm just like bandying her name about, but... Um, um, I'm not. Oh, gosh. Okay, I'm so excited about this because I am on a one-woman mission to just tell everyone about Naomi Mitchison because... Um, so she was Scottish. Uh, she lived to be like 101. I think she wrote over 90 books in her lifetime. She um, was an early reader slash editor of Lord of the Rings um, she and Tolkien were friends. Uh, like her, her network of acquaintance and friendship is enormous. She traveled a great deal. She was an early advocate of birth control, like in the 1950s, I think. And um, she also like had a plural marriage and like a, a very happy one and many children. And anyway, it was just, she's an incredible figure. And um, I only heard of her for the first time in, I think, 2014, I want to say. No, it must have been earlier than that. At some point, though, I, I so my friend Karen Meissner gave me um, a book called Travel Light by Naomi Mitchison. And um, 
it had just been reissued by Small Beer Press. Um, and there was a quote from Le Guin on it uh, that was basically saying that she had, like, I think, introduced it to a friend of hers who regretted not having had it as a child. And that was exactly my reaction to this book. Um, but the reason I bring Naomi Mitchison up is that she has a book called Memoirs of a Space Woman that I want to say was published in like 1962 or something like that. I think the early 60s. And it blew me away when I read it. It's a very short book. Um, but the premise of it is that there is um, it's the far future and uh, there's a woman who is part of a team of communication specialists who are like going out through the galaxy, meeting different creatures and learning to communicate with them. And there is no sense of an imperial apparatus in this book at all. This is not like space imperialism. It is uh, a group of humans who are um, who, fr from an earth where, because, you know, our communication techniques have evolved to the point where we can talk to animals, for instance, we can communicate with, uh, with animals. And we're, so we're going through the world trying to figure out how to talk to people. And people in this case is not like the Star Trek model of moving through, you know, different flavors of humanoid. It's like, here is the planet of the centipede people. And here is a planet of like these radial creatures who are basically these rotating circles in space and stuff. And in each case, the space woman in question, like the, the protagonist whose diary you're reading, um, is reckoning with the degree to which she has to transform herself in order to be able to communicate with these aliens. So in the case of the radial creatures, she has to change her mindset so fundamentally that she cannot make decisions anymore. The idea of like a this or that um, is really, really inimical to their language and the way that they communicate. So she has to kind of change these elements of herself. And throughout the book, she encounters like these vastly different, extremely not human intelligences. And in each case is just kind of asking herself and reckoning with herself in terms of how do I transform myself so that we can communicate. And I was blown away when I read this because it was so different from the, I mean, even something like Star Trek, which, I, you know, is very foundational to me, um, at least Next Generation, uh, and, you know, the exploring, talking to new peoples and stuff like that, does have a very kind of enlightenment ideals core to it, where, um, I don't know, there's just a sense of like, humanity is really great, actually. And, uh, and, you know, our humans will kind of go through and, explain stuff to people who don't know better and something like at its worst I think there can be elements of that to it but in this case just that recognition that encounters with difference change you and that you need to be willing to change in order to um in order to be like to, to enter into a kind of equitable and ethical communication with this much difference um that that kind of affect and that that ethos I think animates a lot of the way that Le Guin approaches difference in culture in her books, that like willingness to be transformed and, and to be changed and to also recognize the limits of how willing you are to be changed. Um, I think is like recognizing boundaries and negotiating boundaries uh, is a big part of what I see in her work there, but I'm so excited to just get to talk about Naomi Mitchison too while I'm at it. Um, and I cannot enough recommend uh, Travel Light and Memoirs of a Space Woman as starting points. She, I mean, like I say, she wrote over 90 books, so, and widely different genres. Well, it, she sounds totally ideal for our show and our podcast, because we're all about, you know, digging into the foundations of speculative fiction, um, particularly by women, um, and well, actually, anyone who isn't the dominant voice <laughs> would be great, actually. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned Star Trek before Charlotte did, because we have this, <laughs> I know, have this I know. ongoing, we have this ongoing joke, which is not really a joke. Uh, it's like every single episode we do, someone has to mention Star Trek. <laughs> do you have, can I ask, do you have like a preferred Star Trek? Me? Oh, I love The Next Generation. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the original one was so 
so groundbreaking in its way. Um, but I was interested what you were saying about, you know, comparing it with Le Guin and, and how they go in there and how they treat new races that they come across and whether they interfere with planets and whether they don't, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how all the different Star Treks have taken a different view on that. I mean, by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, it's kind of like, yeah, we're all just, you know, in there together. There's no extra planets. We're just kind of coming along. And that had its own kind of charm. Because like you say, you do kind of step away from that sort of colonialism and go, well you know what, we're all just here trying to sell things and, and make a living and, and whatever. I'm, I'm so happy to talk about this because um, my partner and I have been re-watching a lot of Next Generation lately, partly, sadly, uh, because we tried to watch Picard and it's so awful. It's, oh I'm no, so is it? So, I haven't tried yet. Oh. We, we watched the whole first season and it was bad, but we nevertheless, you know, started the second season to try and were so it was so disappointing and so boring and such a kind of from where we were concerned kind of character assassination for Picard that we were called that we just stopped and went back to watch a bunch of Next Generation and it holds up so unbelievably well um as a television show and and as um just as like as a work of art I think uh, so we've been rewatching a bunch of those episodes. And a thing that was occurring to me just to actually bring this back to Le Guin is um, how because there's the warp drive and stuff, you don't actually think a great deal about distances or relativity uh, when when watching it. Um, whereas in certainly in like in this volume in Worlds of Exile and Illusion and in those books and in a lot of um, her work more generally, she is so much about making you feel the distances between places, the, the generational distances between places um, and the, how weird and how I, I want to say magical, like this wonderful, I mean, certainly in Rakanan's world and the, the opening in Semley's necklace is this kind of um, almost like fairy narrative by way of, uh, by way of science and physics and stuff where you, you feel like a night has passed, but actually 10 years have gone by and stuff. And the fact that there is a physics sort of version of that, even though it's also a, a sort of fairy story of longstanding, you know, you, you go into the fairy other world and time passes differently there and you come back and either like, you know, all the people you know are dead because it's 70 years in the future or the reverse happens and you spend 70 years in fairyland and you come back and there's only been like one night has gone by and stuff. Um, and those like time dilations have and, and constrictions are all over folktales and, and fairy stories and stuff like that. But, you know, there's there is physics at work and stuff. So to, to see that mixture is always really exciting to me. Uh, and I, I love it in Le Guin. But with Star Trek, I'm so used to time things being aberrations. Um, I think here of like, there is an episode of Deep Space Nine where they visit this planet where people only appear like once every 30 years or something like that. And then the rest of the time they're in this weird suspended state. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't know if this is actually ringing any bells for anyone. I, I should have maybe looked this up beforehand, but the idea is that the, the deep space nine crew who are on this planet um, are like fixing something for people so that they can stay in a material state for longer. Um, but uh, it, it, that, that difference, that kind of like we can stay for this amount of time, but then we vanish into immateriality for a long time. Then we come back and it's been 30 years and stuff like that. It has really stayed with me. Um, but mostly that's the thing. Like I, I feel like so much of Le Guin is about looking at the human, the, the single human in our small finite bodies with our limited lifespans and stuff in the vast immensities of space, spacefaring, and um, and kind of planet scale things, um, and and still finding dignity and beauty and and something really just riveting about that, something loving and and good as opposed to you know crushing and frightening and stuff. 
I love what you're saying about using that extremely famous um, trope that appears in loads of mythology about the time difference between mm-hmm. worlds. And I love the fact that it can that it becomes, you know, it fits seamlessly into a piece of science fiction as it does into a piece of what we would more likely say is fantasy. Yes. Um, I love that the fact that you can apply physics to that, and it's still the same. Um, it's still the same idea. This kind of like it's, it's actually the central seat of my next book which is quite funny so I need to go and (laughs) yeah like the whole going into fairyland and coming back and realizing that everyone you loved is dead and what do you do it's absolute to me it's it's deeply heartbreaking I think that have you read by any chance um the memory theater by uh Karen Tidbeck I haven't it's so good and it's it's a very short book and it's if, if you are into scary fairies like fairies as very cruel like like really cruel, like cruel, capricious, terrible um, people and like having trapped human children, that sort of thing. But that that whole like returning to the world and finding all of that time passing, I, I think it's one of the most, one of the most actually heartbreaking representations of that that I have seen in a long time. And it's in such a slender book. I think anything that takes you out of time is difficult. I'm going to bring it back to Star Trek here. And Star Trek Next Generation, when Picard ends up being caught in a world and living out a whole life, and then he eventually comes back onto the Enterprise and he's lived like an extra 70 years in this world. And even though it's the opposite, and then he's come back to all his friends, there's still that gut-wrenching sense of loss that he had this life, that he participated in the air quotes, fairy realm or whatever it is. And then he's come back to real life and he's he's missed all of that time. And he's he's sort of the same person, but not. So I think even in, you know, the better version where you get to go off and have an adventure and come back, it's still very, very weird. Thinking still of Star Trek, um, one of the episodes we watched recently was Cause and Effect, um, where the Enterprise is caught in a time loop where they keep getting destroyed, but they've then restarted. Oh, I love that one. Right? Yeah. Um, it's wonderful, and I had I I had totally forgotten the ending of that episode, uh, which is that after they escape the time loop and the other ship that has been like running into them for what turns out to have been seventeen days, uh, is is an <laughs> is a ship that has been caught in the time loop for eighty years, and they like, and like Kelsey Grammer I was is the say Kelsey Grammer. Yeah. Kelsey Grammer is there. I was so sh- I was like, wow, I absolutely did not know who Kelsey Grammer was the first time that I watched this episode as a child. Um, and uh, and I was just dazzled by it. But then like the, that that horrible feeling of they they feel like they've been away for a few days and it's been 80 years and everyone on that ship is going to have lost Every, everything that they know, essentially. And it is such a poignant place to end on, specifically because you are coming out of that feeling of relief that that hasn't been the case for the Enterprise crew. Like, ah, okay, 17 days. We can live with having lost 17 days. And then suddenly there's this thing and it's like, oh, oh no, well. Um, but yeah, time, it's tragic. <laughs> it's just so fraught with that. I think where Le Guin is concerned as well, um, these, like the the stories in this volume, are so much about the, the this kind of tragic era. I want to. I keep saying tragic, not not specifically because like not in the sense of like a devastating event specifically, but in the sense of mourning or grief or melancholy as a as a kind of affect that that wraps things. It really feels like a kind of core theme of these three things. The middle book is in a world where um, winter lasts for, I think, 30 years or something like that. So um, there is, you know, you'll live half your life in one season or another. um, And depending on when you're born, you'll be... Uh, like kind of totally dislocated from everyone else if you're like there's a season in which children tend to be born and a season in which they tend not to be and if you are born in the season where children are not born then it's a tremendously lonely experience and stuff um but there's like just the sense of like things that we are used to having as manageably cyclical um when they become cyclical at 
a completely different scale, what does that do to us? Like, what does that do to our ideas of family? What does that do to our ideas of lineage and our ideas of, of the future of, um, of generation and stuff like that? And it's just so moving to me. Um, and the third book in this is like, <laughs> there's one man who's lost his memory who is walking slowly across the landmass of America, essentially, like a far, it, it, is, it is recognizably North America. Um, and he's just walking across it and marveling at the landscape as it changes and as it goes through all of these changes that we now tend not to conceive of as such because we're used to traversing those distances very, very quickly. Um, and here is like this, it just continues to be this wonderful mixture in Le Guin of things that we take for granted being challenged, being upended, being like distorted in some way and and the kind of wonder and devastation that comes from that. That's interesting what you're saying about there being a book where you've got sort of 30 years of winter and it depends on what sort of season you're born and what kind of child you are. And it makes me think of um, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones and this idea of being a sweet summer child and, you know, winter is coming and, and this thing. And I was also thinking about the fact that we were talking about folk tales and repeated motifs within it. And the thing that strikes me is Le Guin is such a master and such an early master that she's almost responsible for some of the tropes that we now see, but they're not tropes in her day because obviously she started them off almost um, alongside with Tolkien and all this kind of thing. But do you find as someone reading it now and studying it now and looking at it now, do you still find that there's fresh elements in there? And is there still stuff that in there that really works for you, even though it must've been done a thousand times since Le Guin wrote it? Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact, it's it's really important, I think, to bring this up and to not do what I did. Uh, in fact, when I first read, for instance, Wizard of Earthsea, um, <laughs> I say this in the introduction, I say that, so I first read Wizard of Earthsea when I was, I think, probably 17 or 18. I was in my second year of university, I um, I was taking a fantasy literature course, and I felt very smug about this because I was also working at a at a, at a bookstore and felt like, you know, I knew from fantasy, right? Like, but what did this course really have to teach me? It was going to be an easy A. Um, and I read A Wizard of Earthsea for the first time. And I was a fool uh, who didn't think it was that great at the time. I was like, well, what? And I mean, this was, I want to say 2002-ish. Um and at that point in time, the Harry Potter books were like at the height of their popularity. Uh, well, not maybe I shouldn't say the height, but they were certainly like they were very zeitgeisty at that point. Um, and so the idea of like a, a wizard school and the like was just everywhere. And so were ideas of like Jungian shadows and stuff like that. It just felt like everything I was reading was wizard schools and Jungian shadows. And I was reading this book and not fully appreciating that there is a difference between being foundational and being derivative. And so I was like, oh, well, there are wizard schools here too. And there's some young, and it just doesn't feel, it's not, I don't know, just kind of, I don't know, just not, it's a little boring, I guess. And I was a fool. Like I, I was an 18 year old fool of a child. And I have since completely recanted those views and think that, um, Wizard of Earthsea is one of the most beautiful, treasure-filled kinds of books that I've read. And that every time I reread them, I pay, to, I pay attention to more in the language itself, more of like that book's project as being so different from many of the things that have come after it and stuff. So I think that there is, um, in terms of like looking at things and finding it fresh, I sort of feel that the farther I get away from it, the more exciting I find what's there, um, the farther our conversations drift in the wake of what Le Guin has done, the more going back to the source feels rewarding and exciting. There was a particularly weird thing that happened as well, where as I was um, getting ready to write this introduction, I read her own introductions to each of these novels, which initially had been published separately um, so she had written introductions for each of them, but all of these introductions were written in retrospect. So she was always looking back at her work um, before writing these introductions. And in the introduction to Rakanan's world, she talks about 
um, the, the fact that she regrets what she calls the promiscuous mixing of science fiction and fantasy uh, in there. That she like feels kind of embarrassed about the fact that she has flying cats in the same story as uh, an imperma suit, which is like a sort of high techy um, piece of clothing that, that protects the wearer from the elements and from various other stuff. And I love that though. Like the thing that she, she, she was writing this introduction, like I think 13 years after the initial publication of the book. And you totally get the sense that this is a writer looking at her first published novel um, and thinking of it as juvenilia, you know, and thinking of it as something that she is still proud of a lot of the stuff that's in it. Um, but she also is kind of embarrassed about some stuff that's in it and that she would do things differently in the wake of it. But I look at that book and I feel tremendously excited by that promiscuous mixing. I, I'm like, this is delicious genre bending. This is um, this is something that is outside of the templates that have sort of formed around our conventions and expectations and genre and stuff. And I like, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't think I can actually see a kind of genre mold without wanting to break it, you know, without wanting to say, well, why is it like this? Why can't we interrogate it a little more and do something differently with it? And I think that, you know, going back to this earlier work is exciting, both because you can see the seeds of things that other people have run with, like, you know, long generation spanning winters or, um, diff or like just the Ansible as a technology, which a lot of people have um, kind of located in Le Guin and used. Um, all of that stuff is, it's exciting because you can see those seeds, but it's also exciting because you see them in a completely different context from the one that we're used to seeing them in. And, and I think that looking at, like trying to kind of appreciate the context in which they were written, the conversations that um, resulted in this kind of thing is a really exciting excavation to take part to. Um, I feel this way about a lot of books that, um, that were written in the, like the sixties through the eighties that were not necessarily part of my own foundational literature, but that I'm getting to come to as an adult outside of any of the conversations that I'm used to having about genre. Like I'm so used to as a critic um, reading books that won't be out for another three to six months, for instance, or always having to talk about what's immediate and what's coming forward and trying to contextualize those things in the context of the last mm, five to 10 years, maybe. But to get to read something that was written in the 70s in a context that um, is, you know, that predates me, essentially, and to, and that falls in that uncanny valley of it predates me, but it doesn't predate um, my parents or a lot of my friends and stuff like that. There's, uh, and, and just trying to kind of appreciate that work in that context is something that I find really delightful. So I was very interested to hear your story about first reading Wizard of Earthsea because I had the complete opposite reaction. Oh, yeah. So I was about 15, barely 15, and was very impressionable, was reading a lot of fantasy. And I was so taken with Wizard of Earthsea that I refused to let my sister even touch the book. She was the, the <laughs> book became sacred and uh, I wouldn't I said everything has its true name I'm not going to tell you the true name of the main character because <gasps> I can't because it's his true name and I'm not and, and you can't know it I shall I shall call him Sparrowhawk that's it <laughs> uh, and she yeah if you ask her I'm pretty sure she remembers I got really weird about it and um, I'm, I actually feel even talking like when I was typing the questions out like typing his name out I was feeling like in a way, the echo of my younger self going, what are you doing? You're sharing his true name with an email. <laughs> You've betrayed us. <laughs> that is so beautiful. <laughs> I think there's really something to that. Like, um, out of curiosity, like, had, did you, uh, I hate asking about the wizard books now because of our current context mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, but like, did, had you read them at that point did you see any commonalities between them or did you see them as super different from each other 
Oh, no, they were super different from each yeah. other. I never put them in the same category. No, I mean, I, yeah, HP, a big, big influence on me. I was reading it when I was 13. Um, mm. But Le Guin, like, in another league, and I recognise mm. that even from an early age. I mean, I, I tore through um, that. They, they, so in the UK, they call it the Earthsea Quartet, and mm. they sold us four books. Now, I, I've i read a lot of criticism about Tihanu, and I think it should not be in that quartet I think mm. it's it, and, a, and a lot of people I mean it, it's her adult book you know in a mm. way I, actually Alan Garner did something quite similar um coming back you know trying to kind of finish a trilogy 50 years after um having written the first two books and I think there is a gulf between the first three Earthsea books and TNU because I as a 15 year old um I couldn't I didn't understand it so in a way we are similar in that I didn't think much of it I thought uh, it, she'd thrown a lot of the magic away. I didn't like um, the fact that it was so domestic. Um, and it, it's it's just one of those books that I, I had to come back to um, at a much, you know, a later age uh, to be able to appreciate it. I think that's so, uh, that's fascinating to me. And I love that. I, I love that you like had this, this powerful like reaction to the book and stuff, because I can absolutely think of, I, I think that, when we're children, there is a certain amount of room that you have in your heart for books that are going to completely transform and change you. And, but, but they can only go so far, you know, like they're, they're the, there are the ones that are going to, I don't know. It's like, can I make a ridiculous metaphor here? It's like, you're a garden plot, (laughs) you know, there's only so much room in which you can, um, receive these like literary seeds that are going to grow in you and make you like flourish and transform you into something else. Um, And depending on what takes root in you, when you'll be like more or less hostile to some other things. Um, But like, I, oh gosh, like the, the, the book that was, that I always say is like at the core of me completely foundationally is The Hobbit. And like, I read it when I was seven and it just became the most important book in the world to me for ages. Um, and I tried to read um, uh, Tolkien, sorry, not Tolkien. I tried to read uh, C.S. Lewis's stuff when, well, I tried to read Narnia when I was 16. Um, and I, uh, I, <laughs> I hated it. I hated it so much. Um, but the I hated it for many reasons. Um, the No, the racism. I hated the racism extremely much. Uh, but like I was in a place to actually recognize Lewis's racism at 15 in a way that um, I wasn't in a place to recognize the racism in, say, Lord of the Rings when I was much, much younger, right? So, and I feel like, I feel certain that if I had read those books in reverse order, I might, ha- it's hard for me to imagine, but like, I, it just, I would have been a different person essentially because of what I read when. And I, I feel very strongly that if you are a bookish child who is really open to um, having these deep, like uh, really just hungry relationships <laughs> with books um, that you allow them to shape you and in ways that, uh, that sort of only become apparent in retrospect and, and that, you know, as it's part of why, I don't know, there, there's something, there's something about reading an adult, reading as an adult, um, that I find so moving, partly because the the kind of reading child that I remember is still sort of there in me, you know, through, like, through several layers of bark or something. Um, and every now and then I read something that kind of reaches that reading child and activates that same sense of wonder and transformation and um, uh, and that just is incredible and stuff. And that, But they feel fewer and farther between. But it also means that you read the stuff in the interim with totally different eyes and that you can sometimes that's to like the work's detriment and sometimes it's to the work's betterment. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think a lot about reading lately. <laughs> um, but, but I love that you had that opposite experience. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, I've never told that story publicly, so <laughs> this is the first time I've ever shared that. <laughs>
Um, but since we were talking about Le Guin. Your um, poor sister. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, you, I'm sure she remembers it. I was very, very territorial about the book. And um, if I caught her even looking at it, strangely. <laughs> Do you ever have that relationship with any other book? No, never anything else. Not on that. I mean, I... Yeah, I read a lot of fantasy, a lot of really um, stuff that makes me cringe a bit now because it was very, very male and very white and very, um, you know, Wheel of (laughs) Time-ish and that sort of thing. And I got very obsessed with things like Terry Goodkind and and Terry Brooks. In fact, all the Terrys. Um, So, you know, it makes me cringe now, but I was very, uh, I got very kind of sucked into fantasy. But none of them had that visceral Hmm. impact as Wizard of Earthsea and actually the first three are the Tombs of Atuan and, and Father Shaw but um, particularly particularly a Wizard of Earthsea I just something about it I still find it utterly magical. You're, that story actually reminds me of um, a story that uh, the relationship that Samuel Taylor Coleridge had with the Arabian Nights um, like as a child he became super obsessed with uh, with those stories. He loved them, but he also was terrified of them. So he had, he describes in a, in a letter, um, uh, he, he wrote this like series of autobiographical letters and stuff to his neighbor. And so he, in one of these letters, he describes how he had all of these rituals around being able to read the book. And one of them was that he, he didn't let himself touch the book until the sunlight in the room had moved in such a way that the sun was hitting the book. Like he couldn't touch it unless the sun hit it. And at that point he would let himself pick it up and take it down and actually read it. Oh my God, that is so Coleridge. Right? It's <laughs> just, essential. It absolutely is. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, ah, I love it. I love it. And specifically, he didn't have that relationship with any other book. He had that relationship with this book of fairy stories, with this book of like fantasies, essentially, that were so uh, formative to him. That explains so much about Kubla Khan, the (laughs) the rawness and richness of that poem. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All of the like the nightmare, so-called nightmare poetry of Coleridge and stuff. um, I, I super love that. I'm going to drag it down a, a notch and say I think having having that idea of not touching something until some, the uh, afternoon sun is on it, I think I'm going to use that for the next piece of chocolate cake I have. And I'll be like, no, nope, oh. not touch it until the afternoon sun has gone past. <laughs> this is something that has cropped up like in, in Le Guin's professional life as well. When we were thinking about the left hand of darkness that was initially hailed as you know as the the first feminist sci-fi novel um, and it engaged with concepts of gender in a way that hadn't really been um, seen in genre previous to it um, but it was later criticized for not going far enough um, and Le Guin herself uh, you know, she seemed to be in constant dialogue with these ideas. And she wrote essay after essay. She even revisited essays that she'd written previously to correct the previous essay. Um, Mm -hmm. So this, I love this, um, the process of reinvention, the process of constantly challenging yourself, you know, encountering new ideas in a way it goes back to the the kind of inquisitiveness of anthropology. Um, Is is this a core part of, of what makes Le Guin Le Guin? I think so deeply. uh, And I think so almost I don't want to say exceptionally, but I'm I'm not aware of anyone else who interrogated their work so consistently and kind of um, relentlessly almost over the course of her career. It and 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 the thing is that I feel like what I love about it is that she didn't disown work. You know, she always recognized, so far as I'm aware. Um, <clears throat> The, the work that had come before, but that she was in a kind of conversation with that work and with who she was. Like, I I could be wrong about this, um, I, but I, my, my awareness of Tahanu is that that is a book that was written, you know, as a kind of critique of, the, of like the Earthsea work previously, that it was that she had been introduced to new information about her own work. Um, there, there was footage of her on um, panels at conventions where she's being asked about elements of her books and stuff. And like, do you think that this is good feminism or not? And she goes, well, no, actually you're probably right. It isn't. Um, 
but I wrote what I did when I did because of who I was at the time, you know, and, and I, I, I just feel there's so much dignity in that. And there's so much grace that I sort of want for us, you know, in general and in, in genre, in fandom, in conversation, just like the recognition that we can change our minds and that that's good, you know, that it's not, um, it's, it's not hypocrisy. It's not flip-flopping. It's not masks off or anything like that. It's that, no, you get introduced to new information and you change your mind. And I just like, it's something that I find probably one of the reasons that Le Guin is as, um, moving and and enduring as she is, is that she took up that work of being in conversation with her own work, which is usually what we do as readers and critics, right? We usually look back at things and um, try to manifest the contexts that created them and measure the distance between us and those contexts and, and stuff like that and bridge those gaps. And the fact that she was doing that with her work because she wanted to, you know, live up to, I guess, her own sense of herself as like, or just, I, I don't know, I don't, uh, this is me probably assuming too much here. I am, <laughs> I, I never met Le Guin, I don't know her, I um, I didn't ever get to have a conversation with her, but the things that I have seen her say or that I have read her saying about her work suggest to me that um, it was important for her to have this kind of integrity um, and to to just kind of, I, I keep thinking of the, the the way that I opened my introduction was with a quote from um, uh, which collection was it in? Let me see. I'm gonna sorry, rustling papers as I consult my own introduction here. Um, right. So she has a 2004 collection of nonfiction called "The Wave in the Mind," and there's just a like a two page essay in there that's titled "Being Taken for Granite," um, punning on granted, and she says. Um, I am not granite and should not be taken for it. Granite does not accept footprints. It refuses them. Granite makes pinnacles and then people rope themselves together and put pins on their shoes and climb the pinnacles at great trouble, expense and risk. And maybe they experience a great thrill, but the granite does not. Nothing whatever results and nothing whatever is changed. And then she goes on to say, I have been changed. You change me. Do not take me for granite. And it's a very curious thing. There's not really any contextualization for that essay. There isn't, there aren't, there isn't a footnote apparatus around it. Um, you know, it, it sort of almost feels like a character voice. Uh, it feels weird to assume that that's necessarily Le Guin talking about herself and stuff like that. But I feel, I, I felt like it seemed indicative to me of the kind of, artist or public intellectual or figure that that she wanted to be that she didn't want to be seen as this kind of pinnacle but like as more like just <laughs> calling herself mud just because it admits footprints and it admits change you know or is something that is generative um and as well as changeable uh feels much truer to kind of her not only her aesthetics but her affects like her uh, the the general sense of her work that I have as being interested in community and in exchange and conversation uh, instead of kind of rigidities, you know, always a question instead of like <laughs> wherever you expect to find an answer, let there be a few more questions essentially is the kind of sense that I get. That was such a lovely quote you read out. Yeah, that, that was beautiful. I, I love that. Honestly, like, God, her, this is the other thing about her is her words are such a pleasure to read out loud. Like her, her style, her composition, um, there's so much music in it and it, there's so much just, it's just so lovely. It's so lovely without being, um, without being ornate, you know, it's not, it's not lovely in the way that Patricia McKillop is lovely. It's, it's lovely in sort of the way that, a sunlit field is lovely, you know? Um, and I just, uh, I, I love her writing so much. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Patricia McKillop, who is my favourite author of all time. <laughs> She's so amazing. I, only, I read um, the, the Forgotten Beasts of Eld uh, for the first time, like, I want to say five-ish years ago. And it blew me away 
because I had forgotten that fantasy novels could be like that. Right. You know? Yes. Um, that they could just be so sui generis, that they could be, that you know, the, because I, I'm pretty sure that now, you know, there are trends, there are fashions and stuff like that. Um, and there are genres in different ways. Uh, and I just, I struggle to imagine that novel being published today. And the fact that we have it, that this magical, frightening sort of, it, it feels more of a piece with like Dunsany, you know, than it does with, um, uh, with a lot of stuff that's come since that I just, I don't know. I'm, I just treasure it. I treasure its strangeness and its sadness and it's, it's, it's fierceness. I just, Oh, I love it. I reread, um, the ones who walk away from Omelas the oh, other day. Yes. And I was thinking how Dunsany is this? Like in, in in Le Guin's work, like I feel I, it's it's funny. Like no, there's these these are authors, and we just literally apart from Le Guin um, herself, but no, nobody talks about McKillop. I, I don't know why. It, maybe it's, I thought it was a UK thing. Like nobody, her books hardly are in print here, um, and also hardly anyone talks about Dunsany either. But maybe just because of the distance of time involved. Mm. But I'm just it's so, I'm so excited that you're like talking about all these authors who I think are so <laughs> interesting and and yeah. The the one thing that I want to still say about Le Guin that I um I, I feel kind of I don't know, this is a weird maybe it's a weird thing to end on, but um I realized as I was kind of researching um the the writing around these particular books in, in Worlds of Exile and Delusion that um I was writing the introduction to these books at like being the same age that Le Guin was when her first novel was published. And that was very moving to me. It made me feel like I hadn't sort of missed my chance, you know, to, to kind of get to know or understand Le Guin because she had passed away so recently. And I had really, um, really hoped that I could actually get to meet her and speak to her and stuff. And it just left me this with this feeling that, um, there's still so much speaking that she can do for me specifically if I just kind of follow the trajectory of these books um, that I can, you know, kind of keep pace essentially with her own writing, like starting with, with her first published work and just kind of moving through. And, you know, she was writing like just, she just kept doing it. You know, she just kept writing and kept having new um, innovative, uh, sharp things to say. And like, I think her words from the, the National Book Award um, address are just going to kind of keep ringing down the years, you know, in terms of um, capitalism, it feels inescapable and so do the divine right of kings, you know. Um, so I feel like there is still just so much to discover and it's so delightful to think of this like, vast map of Le Guin work that exists and that you can sort of travel from one book to the other, like the archipelago in Wizard of Earthsea and just kind of keep on finding all these different wonders and riches and things that are in her work uh, and just kind of keep carrying them forward. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment and completely appropriate um, for wrapping up this episode and, and hoping that you know all our listeners go out and you know obviously we hope that you have discovered Le Guin but certainly <laughs> like the rest of us there is a lot more Le Guin to discover and um, just having this conversation tonight has made me want to go and dig out some of her early work because there isn't really anyone like Le Guin. True. Thank you so much for joining us Amal it's been really nice. This has been such a pleasure thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.